guys. Welcome to Peculiar Stories and Far Out Tales. My name is Kim Yellen. And I'm Anna Howington. And we're just going to jump right in. We are. I'm going to start today. So you know how we were talking about Nome, Alaska? Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, yeah, there were all these alien abductions that happened there. Yeah. And I mentioned that movie, The Fourth Kind. Yeah. I was going to do that. Okay. But turns out that whole thing was a hoax. Oh. They framed it as like being based on on these real accounts but it it wasn't um, it was just a whole like a, like a marketing ploy what a letdown <laughs> you know, and i fell right into it Aww. and apparently like all these people in Nome, Alaska were like really upset about it too oh so i'm not doing that <laughs> <laughs> okay instead i am doing the disappearance of the flannan isles lighthouse keepers oh i don't know anything about this Our story begins on December 15th, 1900, when crew members from the Arch Tour steamboat traveling from Philadelphia to Edinburgh noticed that the lighthouse on the Flannan Isles was out. Mm. And that was really disconcerting to this crew on this boat that was passing by. They're like, something's definitely wrong. Oh, wow. Uh, When they got to land, they immediately reported that the lighthouse was out, but there wasn't a lot that they could do because there was no way to communicate with the island itself. There had been no telegraph set up at that time, and they had to wait until they were going to send this relief ship a few days later. So it was like out of the way. Well, a little bit about the Flannan Islands. They're a set of seven islands, and they're sometimes referred to as the Seven Hunters. They're made of craggy rocks off the coast of Scotland. And when you look at pictures, it just looks like the most foreboding place you could ever imagine. Uh, It's in the choppy, cold North Atlantic Ocean. Mm. The largest of these islands was called the Eileen Moor, which is where the lighthouse was located. It's also home to the ruins of a 7th century chapel. Um, And there are also several superstitious customs associated with Eileen Moore that were documented in the 16th century by a historian named Martin Martin. I know. Martin Martin. Okay. Martin Martin. Yeah. He told us what was up with these islands. Right. And some of these included when you get to the island, you had to circle the church's ruins on your knees. (laughs) And you also had to go to the top of the island, take your hat off. And make a turn sunwise. Oh, Martin. Hmm. He, hey, he didn't make these up. Okay. This is what people had to do when they went there. I'm, I'm sure he didn't. So these islands were uninhabited until the lighthouse crew moved in. It was mainly used by sheep herders. And sometimes people go there on a pilgrimage to see the church. But other than that, there were no other people there. Like, how did they get all the stuff there to build a church? Yeah, it wasn't easy to build stuff there. To build this uh, lighthouse, it took them four years. They were supposed to do it in two, but because the like water was so choppy and it was so difficult to get supplies onto the actual island, it took them twice as long. Wow. And then I also wonder, it says that it was used by sheep herders. So people had to put their sheep on a boat. Right. And then take them to this island. Well, at one point it would just be two sheep, right? Oh, you mean that the sheep live there? That makes more sense. <laughs> I was thinking yeah. that these herders were like taking their whole flock on a boat. Oh, for like a day trip. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's it. but Like a field trip for sheep. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I don't know enough about I sheep. Had this, I had this side, like crazy idea in my head. I was like, how did they get them off the boat? <laughs> <laughs> like this little boat with like one guy and 30 sheep. Yeah. And the dog and yeah. the horse. Yeah, Aww. that's what I pictured. Maybe. Wow. I feel stupid. (laughs) You might be right. I don't don't think I am. (laughs) I think you're definitely right. Hmm. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. So like I said, it took them a long time to build this lighthouse, but they had to do it because there were a lot of ships that were like coming to their end on these jagged rocks of the Flannan Isles. So they really needed to get this lighthouse there. The North Atlantic was really unpredictable and it made for really dangerous crossings. So after they built this lighthouse, they made sure that they manned it really well, which is why they had three men there at all times. The lighthouse went into service about a year before this archer steamboat noticed that the light was out. So it was really new. There's no reason why it should have been defunct. Mm. So there were three men that were on the island at this time, James Decott, Thomas Marshall, and Donald MacArthur. Uh, the relief vessel that was supposed to set sail on December 20th, which was going to be the first contact they had since they noticed the light was out, got postponed because of really bad weather. And it ended up not going out until December 26th. This boat contained supplies and a rotating lighthouse keeper that would trade places with one of the lighthouse keepers that was already there. Oh, I was going to ask that. So nobody lived there. They just kind of, well, they lived there for a bit. but They rotated, Yeah. Yeah, no, two of the men had, like, families, and mm. it says that one of the men had been there for almost a year, like, the main guy. But then they had the other guys rotating out. Not a year straight. No, like, a year straight, yeah. Really? Yeah, like, he oh, just wow. hung out there. I know, that seems crazy. But I'm sure he was going to go back. Like, I'm sure he had, like, a contract time. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, learning new things about lighthouses, I guess I didn't. <laughs> I know. Well, there's nobody there now. I think in the 70s, they they automated it completely. Is there a need for lighthouses, period? Like, I just wonder with, like... I think so. GPS and stuff like that, that you kind of know where the rocks are. But, I yeah, I guess, even, like, little boats, like, they wouldn't know. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, maybe there's not. I, I mean, it would... I feel like I could lean both ways. Like, I could understand both ways. Well, it is. It's still there, and it's still working today. Like, there's still a light in it? I think so, yeah. Oh, wow. Hmm. Yeah. And they don't, to get to it now, I don't think they go by boat or ship. I mean, they still have to go and do maintenance on it, but they put a helicopter pad on it. Oh, okay. So now they don't they don't travel to it, even by hmm. ship. Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, what would be the need anymore? Don't they have, like, also, like, sonar? I feel like there'd be other ways, but you're, we're thinking of, like, these huge ships, but, like, little boats, maybe they don't have the newest technology. Yeah. I don't know. Also, I mean, the more warning you have about a really jagged rock sticking out of the ocean, the better, right? Right, right. Like, if all of this stuff fails... You'll see it. There's a big light. Don't run into the big light. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Okay, so this Hesperus vessel, this relief vessel, it makes its way to Eileen Moore, which is the largest island there where the lighthouse is. And right away, they know something is amiss. They announce their arrival by sounding off the ship's horn to let the lighthouse keepers know that they're approaching. And when that happens, normally two of the men that are at the lighthouse would come down to the approaching ship to help bring it in and they'd be like setting up their empty supply crates to load onto the relief ship and also the guy that's getting off the island is probably like just running down yeah. like, take me away time to go I've been with these two assholes for the last three months <laughs> I gotta get out of here I imagine it would be a, a welcome sight to see somebody else yeah 
the Hesperus shows up and they notice that there's nothing in place for their landing. There's no one out there to greet them and there's no flag on the flagstaff. And they're like, something's definitely wrong here. Um, so they send the guy that's going to trade out places with one of the keepers. They call this guy the relief keeper. His name is Joseph Moore. And he gets in a little boat from the ship and he starts to head to the island. All by himself? All by himself. I know. Uh. Isn't that so terrifying? <laughs> I'd be like, no, somebody, someone come with me just in case. Yeah. You're just like walking into the unknown, you know? Yeah. I wouldn't want to walk into somewhere that there should have been three people and there's no one. And it's just this terrifying looking rock island too. Uh. And it's the dead of winter. Uh. Nope. 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 <laughs> it seems awful. Yeah. Well, once he gets up to the lighthouse, he finds that the front gate and the lighthouse door are locked. And he turned around and went back (laughs) and got someone else, right? He should have, right? Yes. But when he gets inside, there's no one there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, There are two sets of outdoor gear that are missing, which they're like their coats and their lamps and stuff like that. And one set that's still there. Okay. Which is crazy because like I said, it's the dead of winter. Nobody would leave. Without their coat. Exactly. Yeah. The beds are unmade and all the clocks have stopped. I always wonder, but because I don't, do you make your bed every day? No. (laughs) I don't either. But I feel like they had like protocols, right? Right. Yeah. Like it's kind of like being in the military, right? Like you like have these little things that you check off every day. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that they probably did make their beds because why else would they have noted that the beds were unmade? Right, right. Like I said, all the clocks had stopped, which means that they hadn't turned them. Mm. When I first heard that, I was like, oh, like paranormal, you know, that's so weird. But then it's like, oh, yeah, it's back in the day. They had to like wind the clocks. I have a wristwatch that my grandmother, my dad's mom, God rest her, she passed away long before I knew her. But she left a watch that was supposed to be given to me when I graduated from high school. I mean, it's this really delicate watch, but you have to crank it. And I'm just, oh, wow, I'm never going to wear like I'm never I'm always going to forget to crank it. But that's the only watch I've ever seen that you have to crank. How long does it last? It's like the day. Like if you did it in the oh. morning, it would last through the day. And that's about it. Like you'd have to do it every morning, I guess. It's just like charging your iPhone. I guess. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Well, I think the reason why this was so significant is the the clocks that they had, like once they wound them, they would last like a week. I think oh. they, because of that, they know that it had been so long since it was turned the last time. Right. Um, the table was also set for dinner. And it just looked like they got up in the middle of their day and walked away. It was, it's really weird. Yeah. The only thing that showed any kind of signs of struggle or anything like that was that a chair was overturned. Mm. Yeah. Creepy. But that was it. Everything else was intact. Wow. And the doors were locked. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> Joseph Moore goes back to the ship to get more men so that they can yeah. do like a full search of the island. Good idea, Joseph. I know. He like hightailed it out of there. Right. <laughs> and so he did. He went and got some more men from the main ship and they like searched everywhere. They could, didn't find anything. They couldn't find find any sign of the keepers. Wow. So the ship leaves Joseph Moore and two other men on the island. Ugh. And returns back to the mainland. I guess they have to do the lighthouse, right? Is that, yeah. is that the thinking? Yeah, oh they were God. just like, well, we have to turn on this light. And it yeah. said two other men volunteered. Uh, so, <laughs> Voluntold. Voluntold, yeah. I wouldn't want to stay there. No way. No way. 
Um, so the captain of the Hesperus sends a telegram from the ship to the Northern Lighthouse Board dated December 26, 1900, stating, A dreadful incident has happened at the Flannans. Three keepers have disappeared from the island. The clocks were stopped and other signs indicated that an accident must have happened about a week ago. Poor fellows must have been blown over the cliffs or drowned trying to secure a crane. Uh, uh. Yeah. Back on Eileen Moore, the men scoured every corner of the island. They continued looking for clues for the fate of the keepers. But the only thing that they found that could possibly explain the disappearance was there was storm damage to the east landing. So the Hesperus approached on the west landing, but there was also an east landing to the island. And on that side, they found that like some of the railings had been bent and that there was a box that washed up pretty high on the island, which made them believe that there was a very large wave that hit. It was like 110 feet where the box had landed and had burst open and all of its contents were like strewn about. But other than that, everything else was... As it should be. Yeah, as it should be. Hmm. An official investigation ensued by Robert Muirhead of the Northern Lighthouse Board. Um, He was a superintendent. He was also the one that originally recruited all three men, and he knew them personally. So I imagine this was very difficult for him. Yeah. He really looked at every piece of evidence they could find, starting with the logbooks. And this is where things get a little strange. As if this was a totally normal story up to this point. Okay, it's going to get strange. So on December 12th, Thomas Marshall wrote in the logbook, severe winds, the likes of which I have never seen before in 20 years. He went on to report that James Ducat had been very quiet and that Donald MacArthur had been crying. Oh, Oh, this is not what I... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You're right. That is quite strange. It is strange, right? Mm -hmm. MacArthur was a veteran seaman. Okay. Um, He also had a reputation for brawling. (laughs) Okay. I imagine many veteran seamen have a... Yeah. Is that being prejudiced or something? (laughs) Against seamen? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Well, seamen in the year 1900. Right. Yeah, that's... I bet they brawled all the time. I bet they did, yeah. (laughs) It was like their favorite thing to do on a Friday night. Yeah. But yeah, so he he would be totally out of character for him to be crying in response to a storm. Oh, this wasn't the one that was quiet. This was the one that was crying. This is a crying guy. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. Oh. Yeah, he was, apparently he was, he had been crying, but like he'd been around like, you know, crazy weather in the North Atlantic for a long time. This was not new to him. So the fact that he'd be crying about a storm it just seemed very strange. Yeah. Also, like these, that kind of stuff wasn't written in the logbooks, you know? Oh, it wasn't that type of, it wasn't like his diary. No. Yeah. <laughs> Dear diary. Dear diary. This guy's crying. <laughs> I don't know what to do. He's getting on yeah. my nose. <laughs> <laughs> and it's windy. It's real windy out. Yeah. Yeah, no, they were really dry. Like, they would write stuff, like, about weather and ships passing. But it would be very unusual for them to write about the temperament of their fellow co-workers. Hmm. The log entries on the 13th of December stated that the storm was still raging and that all three men had been praying. Which, again, these were experienced lighthouse keepers. Yeah. They were in a secure structure. They were 150 feet above sea level. 
it just seems kind of odd that they all like got down on their knees and held hands. Yeah. You know? Well, or the other side of that is that it was like one hell of a storm. Yeah. Yeah. But there were no reports of storms happening. Oh. On the 12th, 13th, and 14th of December. Oh, that makes it so creepy. And on the 15th, they said, the storm is ended. The sea is calm. God is over all. Huh. That's weird. <laughs> like, there wasn't a storm until the 20th. And that's what kept the Hesperus from going to the Flannan Isles. The 15th was the day that the other boat had gone in front. Like, the other boat was in that area, yeah, right? that had passed through. Yeah. So it would have known if there was a storm right, at, right in front of Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. Hmm. There were a lot of ships going through that area. Right. You know? Yeah. They wouldn't put a lighthouse in like a low traffic area. like. And huh. the lighthouse was on, I think, on the 12th, 13th, and 14th. Oh, okay. I'm guessing there were ships that passed by those days. Yeah. It wasn't until the 15th that somebody said the light was off. I can't imagine that being something that people would like not notice or not report. If it was off on those days, I feel like somebody would have said something. Yeah. And it's not that far. Like, it's far off the coast. But it said that when the first ship passed by and there was no light in the lighthouse, it reported when it got to mainland only a few hours later. Oh, okay. So it's not so, I think, so far out that if there was a storm, nobody would know. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, there were ships all around there. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, no. And they were required to log every day. So the fact that the last log was on the 15th, they think something happened on the 15th, that that was a day that they disappeared. Wow. (sighs) Okay, so now we'll get into like the theories of what happened. So Muir had concluded after his investigation, and this is the theory that's most accepted, that Ducat and Marshall had gone to the West Landing to secure equipment And that MacArthur, from his vantage point of the lighthouse, saw a large swell heading towards the men. And that he rushed outside without his coat to warn them. And then all three of them got hit by this big wave and were washed out to sea. Wow. Oh, that's a good. I know that's your first one, but that's a a good theory. A good theory, yeah. It makes sense. It does, yes. But. The issue with that theory is it doesn't explain the locked doors. Oh, like he would have locked the doors as he ran out to get these men. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And also, like, why do they have locks on this deserted? (laughs) (laughs) Like, who are you keeping out? That's a good point. (laughs) Why would they have ever been locked? Like, did they ever lock it? I just, I don't know. Yeah. The fact that there was a lock there at all, I find troubling. Yeah, that's weird. So it wasn't like put there when they, well, I guess you said nobody leave. Yeah, why would you need a locket? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> mm, the true mystery. The true mystery yeah. was why there was a lock on that door. Yeah. And also, there were no storms reported at that time. Yeah, that's the weirdest part. Like, I feel like I could totally be all for this, except for when you said there was no storms. Yeah. Mm. And then none of the bodies were found. And I guess when something gets washed out to sea like that near an island, like it'll almost always wash back up onto the shore. Oh, really? Yeah. And that never happened. Not even one of them, you know? Uh. Another theory is is that they could have um, hopped on a passing boat and started a new life. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. They just wanted to get away from the harsh conditions of the island. They had had enough of the island. They were done. They were done. 
There is no uh, putting in your two weeks notice. (laughs) They're just over it. Yeah, but two of the men had families. Right, yeah. Hmm. And it would be out of character of them because, like, they chose this life, you know? Right, yeah. I mean, these were not, like, rookie no. Seaman, I like they knew the deal. Like, yeah. And one of them was mm. supposed to go home in just a few days. Right. Yeah. Oh. So it's like if he was going to just like take off, why wouldn't he have done it? Yeah. In a place that was easier to travel from. Right. Why don't you just like wait a tick, man? Like the boat will be here in a second. <laughs> and all three of them? Yeah. That's weird too. Were they in a thruple? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. They just wanted to get away yeah. and go somewhere where their love was accepted. Yeah, to go to like Italy or something. Yeah, I bet yeah. Italy would be more accepting of I that. bet they would, yeah. Well, I don't know. The Roman Catholic Church was there. Oh, that's true. Maybe not. Hmm. I wonder where they would. Paris. Maybe, yeah. Maybe. So that's that's another theory. Yes, okay. Then there's the murder-suicide theory. Hmm. That's when you first were talking about it, This that was something that popped in my head. Yeah, and that is that, like, one man killed the other two and then killed himself. Mm-hmm. And MacArthur did have a reputation for violence, but there were no bodies anywhere. Right. So uh, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. No. My favorite theory is that they were taken away by a giant seabird. Right. Yep. Or a sea monster. Right. Yes. Okay. Or a UFO. Okay. Those, that seems reasonable. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Why not? Giant seabird. Giant seabird. Picked up all three of them at the same time? Or was it three individual seabirds that all had the same idea? Or? Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Also, one had to be in the lighthouse. Right, yeah. So if he saw the other two getting picked up by a seabird, why would he run outside? Right, just to uh, meet the same fate. Or maybe he didn't see it, and then he went out to search for him. Mm. And that's when the board was like, gotcha, motherfucker. Yep. <laughs> Just lie in wait. <laughs> so I'm going to wrap this up with the 1912 ballad, Flannan Isles, by Wilford Wilson Gibson. Okay. Another great name. Say that five times fast. Yeah. Wilford Wilson Gibson. Ugh. Um, <laughs> yeah. As we crowded through the door, we only saw a table spread for dinner, meat, and cheese and bread, but all untouched and no one there, as though when they sat down to eat, alarm had come, and they in haste had risen and left the bread and meat, for at the table had a chair lay tumbled on the floor. I'd love to hear what tune that's to. Oh, yeah, it's it's a, you said a ballad. It's a ballad, yeah. So that's the story of the uh, Flannan Isle disappearances. Creepy. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much. Yeah. So what's yours? Okay. So I'm doing the story of Hero Anoda. Ooh. So it starts out normal and then it takes a turn for the crazy real quick. Love it. So Hero was born in Japan in 1922. And then at the age of 18, he enlisted in the Imperial Japanese Army, which You can imagine if he was born in 22 and then 20 years later. Being in the Japanese army was maybe not the most fun thing to be. But um, yes, World War II and in the Japanese army. But I guess it was compulsory is what I was reading that they they had to. Oh, it's like a mandatory service? Right. Yeah. 
so he described himself as defiant and stubborn with everything I did is how he kind of recounts <laughs> his childhood, which is relevant later. Same Z's. Yes. Defiant and stubborn. <laughs> maybe this, maybe you'll see. Because when I was reading this, I was like, this guy sounds crazy. But maybe maybe you'll uh, empathize with him a little bit more. Uh, in 1942, he passed his physical and he entered the army. He, along with all of the beginning entrymen, was told that they are expected to give their life for Japan and not to be captured. Like, you were expected to kill yourself before you were captured. Wow. So then in 1944, he was sent to um, an island in the Philippines and he started to get special training as an elite soldier. And then he was kind of told the opposite. So he was told then that you're absolutely forbidden to die by your own hand. It may take three years. It may take five years. But whatever happens, we will come back until then. So long as you have one soldier, you are expected to continue and lead him. So when he was he was kind of left in the Philippines, that was his message is that no matter what, he had to keep fighting. It didn't matter how long he thought it had been. Japan will overcome. Japan will win this war and we'll come back for you. Oh, I think I know yeah. where this is going. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So he was on this island um, and he was originally put on the island to try to like take out their ports and try to kind of stir things up for the people of the Philippines and then for the United States because both the Allies and the Axis forces wanted the Philippines because if you had the Philippines, you had a direct line into Japan. Um, so mm -hmm. they were they were working pretty hard to hold on to the Philippines. In 1945, uh, the United States and the Philippine Commonwealth forces took over the island. And within a short time, all of the soldiers had either been captured or they were killed. Um, and Anoda and three soldiers were the only ones left. And Anoda, being the highest ranking officer, told everyone to run into the hills. And this is where things get a little crazy. <laughs> so he kind of, he hid out there. He had two other men with him. Um, there was Corporal Shimada and then um, Private First Class Kamza. And they kind of held out. They just kind of stood where they were and waited for a little bit and stayed in this jungle for days and days and days. And then in August of 1945, the United States dropped the A-bomb and the war was essentially over after that. So the war was over now. Just one problem. Anoda did not know that. Oh my God. So he was still up in these forests. Um, he and these two men were surviving on, it says they were surviving on bananas. Wait, you mean to tell me that they, you can survive on bananas? That's, yeah. How long? Well, at the beginning, it was just kind of a couple months. He wrote a they book. They must have had something else besides bananas. Well, I imagine you like eat leaves and stuff, but he yeah. was saying, he wrote a book and he was saying that they like ate the skin. What about small animals or something? Nothing that I read let, like made it seem like there were a lot of small animals later on. Um, it talks about him stealing from farmers, like stealing cattle and stuff. Wait, later on? Wait, uh, yeah. Yes, later on. <laughs> oh, God. So, yeah. Anyway, so the war ended. And so the Japanese started to drop leaflets onto this island to be like, hey, the war's over. You can come out now. However, um, Anoda read this leaflet and he decided that it was a trick, that it was allied propaganda. Oh, no. He and the two other guys just stayed up in... The forest. So the Japanese started dropping more leaflets and they dropped more things. Um, one of them was was the official surrender. Um, a notice group studied the leaflet closely and de determined that it wasn't genuine. 
And one of the things that they really didn't like is that they didn't think this leaflet that was supposedly the official surrender, it said that it was a direct from the imperial order. And they didn't think that that sounded quite right. Like they thought that sounded translated. Um, And then they were also really convinced that the Japanese would never surrender. (laughs) So they were like, no, there's no way that the war ended because the Japanese surrendered. This is obviously fake. They're obviously trying to get us to come down from the mountains. So six months later, this other guy, Akatsu, joined them. He had been wandering around for a while by himself. (laughs) From what I read, he was kind of like, kind of the odd man out, like he was the lowest ranking and people were not real big fans of his. So he stayed with them for a little bit for a couple months. And then he decided that it was all fake and was like, I'm going to leave. And everybody was, they were trying to decide if it was better because they figured that if he left, he was going to get captured and then he would tell the allied forces where they were hiding but they decided that was better than hanging out with him i guess oh my god so they were like just leave bro it's fine isn't it supposed to be like in the military no man left behind except for this this loser guy i guess <laughs> they was, really didn't like him did they well i don't think that they like left him either i think he like they just didn't make a like concerted effort to make him stay like they were like fine go we'll see you later And so Akatsu went out. He wandered around again by himself for another six months um, before he did surrender to the Filipino forces in 1950, which, in case you're keeping score, is five years later. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So now they're back to three. We're both telling stories of three isolated men. Yeah. but (laughs) They're very different, but it's just interesting. Yeah. So Akatsu, who was the guy that left, went and told people and was like, they're still up in these islands. So they decided to drop more leaflets. (gasps) Why didn't somebody just go try to find them? Well, yeah. So they kind of set up stations for them to go to. Um, It's also kind of interesting. I guess during World War II, Roosevelt started a whole branch of the military that was devoted to these leaflets. Like, I guess that's a common thing to drop leaflets during war. I mean, if there's no way to communicate right with your troops and that's like you need to let them know to like put your arms down that's yeah it makes sense I guess and it's like also to like send like civilians a message too. like that might just be the only way that you have yeah yeah I wonder also like did they personally address them this last round where they like yeah. hey specifically you yes it's over we know you're there like come on out right so akatsu when akatsu got out he wrote a note telling them that the war had ended and to come down like he said what you said he was like hey guys i've met with these people i'm not dead the war's done i wonder if they were like oh you're gonna be there we'll stay up here (laughs) (laughs) right i think i'm okay But they did think that he was captured and that he was kind of being forced. So they were doubling down on this. Right. Yes. That's so crazy. This whole story is about this one man doubling down on everything and just just being like, nope, this is a trick. It's it's not going to go over well. (laughs) So they just decided that that was what was going on. And to try to get them again, they moved on to using a loudspeaker, which I think would be hilarious to see somebody like walking through a forest with a loudspeaker, like being like, come out. Please. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's fine. (laughs) Yeah. So they didn't trust the loudspeaker either. Again, the the Japanese that they were using, they thought sounded translated. Oh, my gosh. From what I read, this was not 
terribly uncommon. Like this was not the only case of the Japanese holding out. I see. And so I think there were like little pockets in a bunch of different places of like a bunch of soldiers that just didn't trust that the war was actually over. You know, that's so interesting, like how they brainwash people. Right, yeah. Like the idea of like how they do in the military, how they like break you down to build you up in their image. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it's crazy. I don't know. To to be, I, I don't, I mean, I'm I'm not a military person in like I, I oh you're not in the air force I thought you were so, yeah <laughs> I didn't yeah secrets it's time to reveal them but I I don't so I don't know a lot about that like mindset yeah me either but it seems like you have to like totally change how you view the world in order to like go to war that well you've got to buy in or else right. you're not going to survive right right like, and and I imagine that that's hard to reverse too like that's hard to be oh, like yeah uh just kidding like can you go back to a normal life now like that yeah yeah totally I also think that it's like like that mentality of if you're looking for something to not be right it won't be right yeah and it's like they created this problem for themselves right because they convinced their soldiers that this could never happen. Right. Yeah, totally. So um, they started kind of a different tact with the leaflets and they started to, like you said, make them really personal. So they started dropping letters from their family and um, newspaper articles. But again, Hero found issues with these. Are they like including details that like only their family members would know and stuff like that? Yeah, I, I guess. I don't, they seem to have included as oh much as they could. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but the thing that threw Hero off was there was a picture of his quote, immediate family, but there was someone in the picture who is not his immediate family, who was just family. Okay. You know what? I have a theory here. Okay. I think that Hero knows that the war is over, but he is enjoying doing this too much that yeah. he's staying in the forest. Maybe, yeah. He's, You know, sometimes you just got to get away. You got to... You know what my theory is here, too? What? I think they were a thruple. Yeah, they were just trying to live <laughs> their lives. Just trying to, like, express their love. Yeah. Yes. Um, they also included a newspaper, and there was an article in the newspaper about the general who had negotiated peace. And um, Anoda decided that the newspaper was genuine, but that this article was snuck in there to try to get him to come out. Oh, my out. God. Yeah. <laughs> what is going to make him believe? In 1954, which is nine years later, they were apparently just walking by a river. The, the three men were walking by a river, and they saw somebody, or they saw other people, and they started to shoot at them. And then the people shot oh back. Oh, my God. Yeah, this was not just a, like... They were not just there, like, up in the mountains. Like, they were definitely, so they like... they were continuing to try to fight as right. well. Yes, they were at war. Like, they were convinced that they were at war, which is another complaint oh from God. the, like, the Filipino people. They were like, these crazy men are up in this forest and are shooting at us all the time. <laughs> so, oh my God. on May 7th, 1954, uh, Shimada was killed when he was shot in the head by this search party that was looking for him. Which, I will say... Worst search party ever. Oh my like, God. what are you doing? <laughs> well, but, did he shoot at them first? Yes. I think that, that okay. it was like a gunfight and he I mean, just got the end of it. They got to protect themselves. I mean, right. Yeah, that's true. But look, if I went missing and you came looking for me and I started shooting at you, that's, <laughs> what would you do? That's true. Just to talk more about the like shootouts. He was shot in 1943, a year earlier. He was shot in the leg too. So he just... 
was not having a great time on this island, so, I guess. They were there for 10 years. Did they build themselves well, a fort? <laughs> like, were they just sleeping under trees the whole time? I think they did have kind of a nice setup, but they were moving around a lot, too. They, they thought that the enemy was after them. And so they were kind of being very nomadic and moving around. Oh, my and, God. Yeah. So I don't think they had, like, a house, really. Like, they might have had kind of a tent or a lean-to How or whatever. How big is this island? Uh, big enough for them to to walk around. It's not very big. I don't I don't think it's very big. But I think it's really dense. Like, they, there were a lot of different yeah. places for them to go. So, oh, my gosh. It's like, how do you save somebody that's dangerous? Right. When they're literally just going to try to kill you. It's like, you might as well just leave them. Right. Dude, the last time I tried to find them, they shot at me. I like, I'm really sorry for them, but I'm not going to die looking for these like crazy men that are thinking the war hasn't ended for nine years. (laughs) But um, after Shimada's death, there was all these protests in Japan that they wanted to bring back the remaining two men. Like it became a a big... (laughs) rallying point so onada and katsu were the only two that were left and japan was like we need to bring these guys back like we have to find them so the government did the only thing the government seems to know how to do not more leaflets more leaflets oh no so so they started to do more leaflets they started to do more um like announcements so like all the things that didn't work before they're like maybe this will be the one like this will be the one that (laughs) convinces him and i guess too like they don't know why they're not responding to these leaflets like so, but they know for sure that they're there because there's like sightings of them, right? Right. The Filipino <laughs> farmers that keep getting shot at are well aware that they're there. And their food's stolen too. They're like, these right. people are just wreaking havoc on us. Right. Please come get your men, Japan. Please. <laughs> oh like, please God. figure this out. So, one of the things that they dropped was a flag with the names of Hiro's family on it. Hiro found a flag, a, a Japanese flag, but. His sister-in-law's name was apparently misspelled. No. Oh, my God. Come on. But, like, a little misspelled, like an E was missing or something like that. Like, something kind of small. So, he was convinced. This is, this is, I think, the craziest one. He was convinced that it was an actual flag from Japan that the U.S. made them drop, but they were trying to send him a message through this little misspelling to try to convince him to stay up in the mountains. Like, he thought it was, like, this crazy, like, double cross thing. I'm sorry, but this guy, like, how narcissistic do you have to be? That you're like, they're going to go through the trouble for just one soldier. You're not even doing anything. Like, why would the U.S. government or any government drop this much, like, specific stuff for you you're one guy. Right. A lot of work to get two soldiers. Yeah. Yeah. And all they have is like some guns. How much ammo do they have? I think that was one of the things that they were stealing was ammo. Because when he gets, when when this finally ends, it's kind of crazy how much stuff he still has on him. So I, I think he was stealing stuff and that was one of the things he was stealing. But yeah, it seems like a whole lot of work for like two men. Like how important do you think you are to the war effort? Right. You're just in in the middle of nowhere. Like, right. And this isn't like the emperor of Japan. Like this is like one little guy. Yeah. That you, you're convinced that like this crazy double cross is happening. That's crazy. Yes. I, I agree. It's, it's pretty crazy. 
So they only killed when they thought it was absolutely necessary, which I guess when people were shooting at them, they thought it was necessary. Um, but they didn't feel guilty about it because they thought they were at war. Like even at the end, they didn't really feel guilty about it. So now we're going to fast forward a whole bunch. I want you to guess how much how much we're going to fast forward. So Shimada was killed in 1954. Ten years. Nope. <laughs> Keep going. So the next major event happened on October 19th, 1972. Shut the front door. Nope. They stayed fighting yes. this imaginary yes. war for... Yes. That's Forever. 25. Yeah. yeah. So at that point, it was like 25 years. No, 30 years. 1974? Oh, yeah. Yes. 30 years. Al- almost 30 years. Yeah. Oh, my God. So in 1972, <laughs> apparently one of the things that they did was just start fires. They would go down to uh, the Filipino farmers' rice farms and they would just set them on fire. I I, I don't know what they 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 interpreted it as like guerrilla warfare tactics. No. But it seems like just being dead. I don't know. Uh, yeah. I just I don't know. They I think they want to be there. I guess so so in one of their quote guerrilla activities, they went down to this to this farm and started burning rice and while they were doing that Kamza was, first he was shot in the shoulder and then he was shot in the chest and was killed. So the only one left now is Hiro Anoda. No, he does not keep going, yes. does he? No. So, well, wait. No, I can't. I yeah. can't believe it. They tried to to send him messages again. Um, they dropped a newspaper that had news of uh, Kamza's death, but they described him <laughs> They described him incorrectly. They said that he had a five cent piece in his pocket and Anoda knew that it was in his waistband. I just, I can't, I can't with this guy. Right. I can't. So from that, he is still convinced the war is still going on. But this again started up a big uh, motion in Japan to try to get this guy back. He's alone. Right. He's totally alone. And he's going to keep going. After th- almost 30 years, like, of being in this forest. Um, so his, they start still trying to, um, to get his attention. One of the things, actually, this was before, but one of the things that they had tried, they brought Hero's brother to the island and had him walking around being like, come out, please. Like, this is your brother. (laughs) And he was, so then Hero was convinced that the voice was a recording and they happened to find a prisoner that happened to look like his brother. And then I guess at some point his brother like got emotional talking on, like being like, please come out. I haven't seen you in forever. And he was like, no, my brother would never get emotional. Oh my God. That didn't work either. So nothing was really going to work. Also before this, in 1959, Japan declared them dead. Japan was like, these two guys, there was still, the other guy hadn't been killed yet. Um, they were like, these two guys are dead. And that, again, started to get, the people of Japan were like, no, they're not dead. We know they're not dead. I bet the Filipino people were like, dude, he stole my cow last week. He's not right. dead. Stop trying to pawn this off, you know? Right. Like, he's shooting at me. Like, he's up there shooting at me and killing my, like, countrymen. Japan's like, Nope, we don't think it's him. <laughs> no, he's dead. We know he's dead. We've decided he's, he's dead. Gone. Yeah. Um, but the people of Japan knew that wasn't true. They knew he wasn't really dead. So when Kamsa died, um, they um, started to, again, drop more leaflets. They started to 
get more of his family members there. They brought some members of his school to like walk around and try to try to get him. Um, his dad, I guess that his dad couldn't travel to the Philippines, but his dad left him this note in one of, they set up kind of little boxes for like mail, I guess, almost. They would leave things there and be like, look, like, please come out. Um, so one of the things they left was this poem from his dad. And it says, not even an echo responds to my call in the summery mountains. Oh, that's beautiful. Is that a, is that a haiku? I thought it was, but a haiku, I looked it up. A haiku is 575. And the middle, not even an echo is six. And then responds to my, wait, responds to my call is four. But then a summary, Matt, that, that one's seven. So if it is a haiku, I don't know if that's like hard and fast rules that they have to do the five, seven, haiku-ish. five. Haiku-ish. Yes. Haiku-like. Yeah. In, in the wor- realm of haikus. I literally wrote haiku question mark on my piece of paper. <laughs> so I wasn't sure either. Yeah. So his dad wrote him this letter, this poem. He still wouldn't come out. So enter Nero Suzuki. So Nero Suzuki was a a 24-year-old dropout. So he was not even alive when Hiro entered the forest. Oh, my God. (laughs) He was this world traveler, I guess. And he said that he was looking for, quote, Lieutenant Inoda, a panda, and the abominable snowman in that order. Wow. Was what he was looking for. I love it. I feel like panda does not fit on that list. People are lunatics, aren't they? Yes. There's just lunatics walking around out there. Yep. Hey, I'm all for it. Be your crazy self. Yeah. So the government has been looking for this man and trying to get in touch with him for almost 30 years. And within four days, Suzuki finds him. And like at first it was really hostile, <laughs> but but he did convince him that like he was there for good means. And so Suzuki sat down with him and it was like, look, dude, like what what? would I need to show you to convince you that the war is over? Like, we've tried your family. We've tried all these messages. We've tried to send you newspapers and magazines. Like, what? what is it? And so Anoda said he has been waiting for orders from his superior officer. And that's it. Oh, my God. So uh, Suzuki was like, gotcha, dude. All right, I'll go back to Japan. So he went back to Japan. He uh, had taken a picture of himself with Hiro Anoda. And that picture immediately got published on the Japanese newspapers and it was circulated everywhere. And everyone was like, this guy's alive. I found him like great. And then um, they took the news. Like, I guess the newspaper got taken back to the Philippines and shown to Anoda. And he said it was the first time he'd seen his face in 30 years. And that he looked like one of his uncles, which I thought was kind of funny. But yeah, they found his commanding officer. His name was... Major Yashumi Naguchi, Mm -hmm. and he had since become a bookseller. So he, I'm glad he was alive, but (laughs) they got his brother, they got some other of his family members, and they went back to the Philippines, and his commanding officer presented him with the following orders. And it says, one, in accordance with the Imperial Command, the 14th Area Army has ceased all combat activity, Two, in accordance with the military headquarters command number A-2003, the special quadrants of staff headquarters is relieved of all military duties. 
And three, units and individuals under the command of the Special Squadron are to cease all military activities and operations immediately and place themselves under the command of the nearest superior officer. If no officer can be found, they are to communicate with the Americans or the Philippine forces and follow their directives. So that was his final orders. That apparently did it for him. He decided to, to surrender. He came down from the mountains? He came down from the mountains. Whoa. When he surrendered, he was still wearing the same military uniform. And he surrendered his sword. He surrendered his functioning Type 99 rifle, 500 rands, rounds of ammunition, and several hand grenades. Um, as well as, fun fact, as well as a dagger his mother had given him in 1944 to kill himself if he was captured. Oh, my God. Yeah. So he turned all of that His in. mom gave him that? Yes. What? I feel like that's such a, like... No wonder he didn't want to go back to his family. I know, right? Oh, my God. Yeah. So he turned all of that in. In his time that he was up there, it's estimated that he killed 100 people, but he said that he only killed 52. Wow. He was 52 years old, too, by the time that he finally surrendered. He was not the last Japanese holdout to be found. What? Um, in December of 1974, so not that much longer. So just a couple months later, um, another guy was found in Indonesia. But the difference was that the Japanese kind of culture felt that he had surrendered. Like they felt like Anoda had not surrendered. That like he had to be convinced of this. But then they felt like this other guy surrendered for some reason. Oh my god! I don't know. Yeah, so he was pardoned by President Fernand Marcos of the Philippines because he was convinced that it was war. And within an hour of his surrender, he was on a helicopter to go back to Japan. He was met with all this fanfare. It was, it was a big deal. Everybody was really excited to see him. Um, he did write an autobiography called No Surrender, My 30-Year War, shortly after his return. There was also, there was a character on Gilligan's Island that was based on him that apparently was super racist. So oh, God. keep that in mind. I don't think I've ever seen an episode of Gilligan's Island. You so. haven't? There's a point in, I don't know, like the 60s and 70s where I feel like everything kind of has these very like racist, like misogynistic. Oh, yeah. That you're just like, oh, God, never mind. Like, yeah, yeah. Yep. And uh, he, <laughs> the Japanese government offered him a large sum of money in back pay, 30 years of back pay, which he refused. For some reason. This guy. When he kind of returned back to life, he was reportedly really unhappy. Um, in 1975, he followed his brother and he left Japan and moved to Brazil where he raised cattle. He got married. Um, when he he read about a Japanese teenager who murdered his parents in 1980, he returned to Japan and established this kind of nature camp for young people. And he did, he did go back to uh, this island in the Philippines to kind of recount his story. He ran for the legislature. Okay, uh, do not vote for this guy. No, no, no. No. There is kind of that like national hero that I think sometimes wins, <sighs> but I, I feel like this, he didn't win, but he ran. In January 2014, he died of heart failure at St. Luke's International Hospital in Tokyo due to complications with pneumonia, and he was 91 years old. Wow. And that is the story of Hiro Inoda, the last soldier. Oh, God. So, <laughs> yep. That's, wow. that's his story. That is so yeah. crazy. Crazy, crazy. God. I just, I, would, I wouldn't be cut out for military, period. But I certainly, I feel like it'd almost be worse camping for 30 years. I, I would not. <laughs> I'd be like, guys, I'm done. 
Yeah, I just like what were his conditions I, like, and why not do like some go like sneak into a, like the town and like look at the newspaper there, he or just something. Thought everything was fake. There was something I can't remember when it was, but he did at some point steal a radio. I mean, maybe he was happy. I feel like that's got to be part of it. You know, like maybe he was like just really enjoying playing at this war. And part of him was like, you know, this shit's over. And he was like, yeah, but this is great. Right. Yeah. I want to keep doing this. It'd be interesting to like figure out his motivations. But I, I feel like it would come from a place of, you know, kind of that delusion continuing. If you were to be like, dude, what were you thinking? Why were you doing this? Do you think a part of him all the way to the end, like still questioned like everything around him. I, I just, I could not imagine. I mean, like modern wars do not go on for 30 years. Like uh, to be 20 something. Well, you know, America's really trying to reach that goal right yeah, now. That's true. Yeah, modern that's, wars should not go on no, for 15 years. No. 16 years. That's true. How many years has it been now? It's, it's, been, a, it's been a minute, I guess. But I don't know. Like wars, like how World War II was a war. Like, ugh. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, there does get to be a point where you just have to be like, I'm ignoring everything that makes sense and I'm yeah. just going to like go for it. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. So. Wow. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. You're welcome. Oh my gosh. Do you want to do our rundown? Yeah, sure. Do you want to go first? Sure, I'll go first. Um, last, last time we recorded, I talked about a run that I did while over Christmas break and um I mentioned the stupidest run that I ever did. So I'm going to tell the story of the stupidest run I ever did. Yes. And uh, just, um, you know, put it out there as a warning. Don't do this. (laughs) So I got really, really sick um, while I was traveling. And um, I decided to, I was staying in a hotel and I wanted to try out their gym because it was like a cool gym. And I was like, like had just sweated out my fever the night before. Okay. And I was like, I, I'm going to go, you know, run out this fever or whatever. The last little bit of it. Don't do that. It's stupid. <laughs> I got on the treadmill and I was like, there were a bunch of people there too, which was like, I guess this was, this is really just comes down to my ego. Like I get on the treadmill and immediately, as soon as I start to run, I'm like, this is a terrible idea. <laughs> I just start pouring sweat. I haven't even gone like a quarter mile and I'm just like dripping sweat and I'm so weak. Cause like I must have had like a hundred and two fever like the night before. It was it was really. Oh bad. wow! Oh, I th- I thought you were I, saying you were like at the tail end of. Are you you just thought you were at the tail end? I thought I was. At, well, you know how like when you get really really sick and you 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 sweat out a fever mm-hmm. and then the next day you feel really weak. Yes. And yeah. bad. And I guess, I mean, I don't think I was fully better at that point in time. No, apparently not. (laughs) But then I was like embarrassed to get off the treadmill. Oh. I don't know why. I just felt like people were like all around me and I was going to look like I couldn't. (laughs) I don't know. No, I do that. You were at, you were at a gym with other, like this was like a hotel. It was a hotel gym, but there were like a bunch of people in it. Like like I'm ever going to see these people again in my life. Like who cares? No, I, but I do that too. When I'm like, no, I have to go faster because these people are for some reason paying (laughs) attention to me. Like. And they're not. Nobody is. Nobody cares. No. No one is paying attention to you. <laughs> I, I didn't want to like just immediately get off because I was embarrassed. Yeah. So oh. I ran a mile and it just made me worse. I just oh, got no. sicker after that. It was it was really bad. I probably would have gotten better if I had just like taken care of myself. Anyway, my point being is that if you get the flu, 
don't try to run out of flu. It's <laughs> just, not going to work. You just know? give yourself a minute. Take a break. It's okay if you don't run for a week if you're sick. Yes. Just, I, just listen to your body. Take yeah. a break for a second. And don't keep going if you're not feeling it because you're in a gym with other people. Right. Nobody cares. Yes. Like, do what you need to do for yourself. Yeah. So that's the, that's the moral, the moral of, story. of yeah, the story. <laughs> that's funny. Um, so my, mine is kind of a question. So I've been noticing this is kind of 5K season in Texas because it's effing hot 90% of the time. And so this like three month span is the only time that you can kind of do 5Ks. And so I've been signing up for a lot of 5Ks. Like there's pretty much one every weekend. Like I'm running two on next Saturday. I'm kind what? of excited about it. That's yeah. awesome. We'll have to see how it goes. It's like one. great. Well, once in the morning and once in the evening. Which I feel like, like I've run 10Ks, so I feel like it'll be fine. But I don't know what this like gap in, whatever. I'm sure it'll be fine. But anyway, I've, I've been signing up for all these 5Ks. And I've noticed this recent trend of eating while you're running, like that being a thing. There's like, there's a kolache. Do you know what a kolache is? <laughs> I can never figure out if it's like a Texas food. Oh, it's, it's like, um, it's it, like a bun with sausage in it, right? Yes, like a bun with a hot Why dog and cheese in it. Why would you eat that while you run? Yeah, yeah, so there's that run. And then there's other ones with like donuts. And there's one with pizza. And there's one with beer. Do you get one at the end of the run? Yes. So the kolache one, I, I kind of like because they're doing it. I think you, so you sign up for it and you pay an extra fee for like the kolache challenge that you run a 5K, eat three kolaches and then run another 5K. Why would you do that? <laughs> I, I don't know. But I the other I get ones, it at though, the end, like at right. the end, like you the get your end, run done. Absolutely. Then... The end, I'm like all about like a really good like post race party. Like I love yeah. when there's like stuff to do after the race, like yeah. the Shiner run that me and my family do every year. Like they're really good about it. like there's a band and there's like like a gourmet hot dog, a fancy schmancy hot dog and mm -hmm. like beers everywhere. Or you could do tours of the um, like it's at the Shiner Bach. Um, distillery oh, and yeah it's like a fun little party and I've done other races that have like fun little parties at the end of them but like I don't I've just noticed this like recent trend of like there'll be pizza stations every you know 250 meters and I'm just like why would I why why would I want to do that pizza, like that's crazy right and I I feel like with with those ones I feel like I'm like missing out like I pay the same amount of money whether I eat a pizza or not and so I feel like I'm like losing money the kolache one, I think, is nice because it's like you pay extra for the kolaches. <laughs> so I don't feel like I'm like yeah. getting gypped on some kolaches. Yeah, but, I feel you. Yeah, I just I just was wondering if you had seen that I recently. I never or, heard of that. that really? Bonkers. <laughs> I mean, I, I see like, you know, like they'll do like beer runs, but yeah. I've never heard of during the race eating some like abhorrent type of food. Right. <laughs> is that part of the challenge? Like eat a whole pizza and then try to run. I, I guess. I don't get it. I don't get it. No. So I was, I guess. It You'll is have to me. let me know how it goes. Are you going to yeah. do it? Or are you going to eat it? Or are you gonna... No, I will oh. be, I will be at it. I'll let you know if anyone throws up. Well, good luck. Yeah. I'll, I'll report back. I'll let you know. Awesome. Okay. Well, thanks for tuning in guys. Um, please check us out online at peculiar stories and far Our Instagram is the same name. If you're still using Facebook, I don't know who still is using Facebook. <laughs> Grow up. Yep. No, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah. No, it's the opposite. Oh, it's, it's, the opposite. it's all yeah, your, it's you're your right. mom. You're right. Go go log on to your mom's Facebook and <laughs> log on to your Facebook and like yep. our page. Yep. 
Yeah. We'll take you anywhere we can get you, actually. I shouldn't. Yep. And our Patreon is patreon.com at PSAFOT. Please rate us, subscribe yes. to us. Please. We need it. Yep. Help us out. Okay. And always remember it is much better to be peculiar than to be boring. So true. Please. Have a great day, night, morning, <laughs> whatever <laughs> it is that you're doing right now. Yeah. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.